Hi, everyone, and welcome to the American Amulist EMS podcast. I'm here with our fantastic co-hosts, Dr. Sajin Fakta, Dr. Patil Armenian. Hi, everyone. Hello. Today, we're going to be talking about a COVID-19 update. So sadly, COVID is still here. Some things have changed and some things have not. But we're hoping to do with this podcast is kind of keep everyone up to date with the latest stats and go through some recent guidelines. So Saji, why don't you kick us off with um, intro and kind of what's happening epidemiology-wise. Sure. So let's start by looking at some of the numbers that we've been tracking since the start of the pandemic. So according to the CDC, the world has seen over 762 million cases and 6.9 million deaths since the pandemic started. That is a huge number of people. What about in the U.S.? In the U.S., we've had over 102 million cases and 1.1 million deaths. In California alone, there have been over 12 million cases and over 101,000 deaths. In Fresno County specifically, there have been over 296,000 cases with over 3,000 deaths. These numbers are very sombering, and it's really sad even in Fresno County that we've had so many deaths. Um, What about vaccines? Do we know if vaccines helped prevent deaths or not help prevent deaths? Do we know anything about that, Sajin? Absolutely. We've been seeing throughout the pandemic since the introduction of vaccines that they really cut down on hospitalizations and deaths, and this is actually still true. In fact, a study from February 2023 showed that unvaccinated people are still 2.3 times more likely to die from COVID. That's some pretty convincing evidence for getting vaccinated. So what's the deal with the Omicron variant now? Well, we're still seeing it as the predominant variant throughout the world. There are several subclassifications of the Omicron variant, each with small mutations that can change the infectivity, the severity of illness, and the types of symptoms. It's always surprising to me, like, why are we still experiencing all these surges? You know, we almost feel like it should chill out and just have like a low level everywhere. So can you talk more about these surges? That has a lot to do with the variants and the mutations that the virus is undergoing. Again, the slight changes to things like the spike protein or the way that the virus gets into the cell really affects how many people it is infecting and the types of symptoms and the severity of symptoms. Unfortunately, we're still getting these surges. Uh, Between December 2022 and January 2023, there was another mini COVID surge throughout the country. In Fresno County, average cases rose to over 300 per day, and average deaths rose to over two per day. I was actually working a lot in that time period, and I hadn't seen these numbers before right now. And um, But I remember working a lot and thinking that we were getting more COVID again. So that's interesting to see that the actual data represents that. Now, what are our current numbers looking like? As of the end of March, Fresno County is still averaging over 30 cases per day and about one death every two to three days. Yeah, so that's good for all of us to remember that COVID is still a serious threat and people are still dying from it. I mean, one death every two to three days, that's still a lot of people, especially if that's your loved one, that's your family member. So let's go into the pathophysiology. Um, I know we've talked a ton about COVID and how COVID works, but let's just refresh our memories. Patio. The virus attaches to the ACE2 inhibitor via the spike protein, which is like an ACE inhibitor medication, basically. 
Now, these receptors are found on many types of cells in the body, including the lungs, intestines, kidneys, heart, and blood vessels. And that's why we see common symptoms of infection in those areas of the body. Right. I remember we discussed that before, and I remember reading that earlier. What about the incubation period? I think that's changed a little bit with the newer variants. Is that right? Yeah, it has changed. So with the older variants, the incubation period or that time between exposure and symptoms was about four to five days. For Omicron, it's closer to three days. And actually, 98% of people will develop symptoms within eight days of exposure. So that time period has shortened a little bit with the newer variants. That's still pretty fast. You're getting exposed and sick within three days or even three to eight days. So this must mean that the infectivity or reproductive numbers also change. Can you refresh your memory on that, Patil? Yeah. The infectivity or reproductive number is the number of cases arising from one individual. So for the alpha variant, it was three. With infection control measures like lockdowns, it dropped to 1.5 between March 17 and April 1 in 2020. So the lockdowns at that time were working. For the Delta variant, it went up to five. So one person will infect five people. And for Omicron, it's actually up to 10. So just to remind everyone listening, so that means one person gets infected. I bring this home. I'm going to give it to 10 other people. Um, They're going to get infected and may or may not have a severe illness. Now, um, the severity has also changed with time and with each variant. An analysis from England published in Lancet estimated that the risk of hospital admission or death with Omicron was approximately one-third of that of Delta. But even though the individual risk for severe disease with Omicron is lower, the really high number of cases can still result in a significant number of hospitalizations and deaths compared with other variants. Now, what about reinfections with Omicron? I know we saw that before, that you could get this disease multiple times. Are we still seeing the same thing? Omicron variants may also escape humoral immunity and are associated with a higher risk of reinfection. In one study evaluating national surveillance data from South Africa, the rate of reinfections was significantly more, up to 25% during the surge associated with the Omicron variant compared with the surges associated with Delta. However, antibodies against the later strains of Omicron seem to result in better, long-lasting immunity. That's what the bivalent booster was ultimately based on. So let's jump to vaccines. I feel like it gets confusing because there was the original vaccine that was a two-step, then there's been a booster, and then there's become the bivalent booster. And so kind of you break that down for us, Sajin. What if I've never gotten a vaccine at all? Like what happens now? Do I start over? Or what happens if I've gotten the whole series and what's next for me? So you can kind of break it down for us. Sure. Well, starting from the beginning, the original SARS-CoV-2 strain had these spike proteins, and that's where we developed the original vaccines from. Now, we saw over time that the later strains of Delta and the later strains of Omicron were becoming less sensitive to the antibodies that were developed from the original vaccine. So the drug manufacturers and the governments around the world realized that we needed a little bit more protection against these newer variants. In the United States, we developed the bivalent booster based on the BA.4 and BA.5 subvariants of Omicron. They have identical spike proteins. And so combining the original spike protein with these new spike proteins in the mRNA vaccines have resulted in this new bivalent booster. So how effective are these new bivalent boosters? So according to a study in the U.S. of over 250,000 symptomatic individuals, 
they had finished their initial dose of the monovalent vaccine, that's either two or up to four doses, the estimated vaccine effectiveness of an additional bivalent booster dose was up to 56% among those that were last vaccinated more than eight months before that booster dose. That's pretty good. 56% is pretty good for a vaccine. What about older adults, the ones that are more high risk for severe disease? In older adults, it was actually even more of an effect. Um, Another study looking at that same population data in the U.S. showed that bivalent booster dose was associated with 73% vaccine effectiveness against hospitalization compared with no additional vaccination in individuals older than 65 years old who had completed their additional series at least two months prior. What about safety? The overall safety profile of the bivalent booster is similar to that of the original vaccine. About 10 to 20% of all patients might experience significant side effects for the first 24 hours, like fevers, chills, muscle aches, um, but overall tends to be very well tolerated. What about the rare side effects? You read a lot about, you know, um, clots, DVTs, strokes, Guillain-Barre. Can you just talk briefly about those? Yeah, so the... Original side effects and the rare side effects that we were seeing, such as clots, were more associated with the AstraZeneca and the Johnson & Johnson vaccines. Those used a different carrier for the vaccine, and they were slightly more associated with those blood clots. We are not seeing those same side effects with the mRNA vaccines. Um, Some of the mRNA vaccines were associated with a little bit more of myocarditis um, in younger men especially, but we are not seeing that significant of uh, side effect with the bivalent booster. I hope you guys aren't distracted by my baby saying hello to you all in the background. (laughs) I apologize for the background noise a little bit. The baby cry is so cute in the background. All right, well, let's jump to masking. Um, I feel like masking has been so controversial um, in the past couple of years with COVID. And now, you know, at least in California, masking restrictions have been lifted. Um, So let's just review why masking worked and what it did. And then let's talk about the more recent regulations recommendations. I know that masks are supposed to protect us from particles in the air, but Patil, can you explain exactly what they're doing? Masks are basically limiting the particles that we may distribute into the into the air by basically capturing those particles. Now, um, I think we talked about this a lot in the beginning of the pandemic, but just to refresh our memories, aerosols are particles less than five micrometers, and droplets are particles that are greater than five. Now, droplets tend to settle due to gravity, and they don't travel distances more than six feet. So remember that six feet in social distancing, that's what it was based on. So droplets don't travel far, but aerosols remain suspended in the air for longer durations and play a very key role in spreading infection, and they can go much further. And then the N95 masks, you know, they are designed to capture more than 95% of the particles that are above 300 nanometer, which we will typically use as a standard for aerosol precautions. So I know that different fabrics can also affect how well a mass blocks particles. There's been a lot of research on which fabric works best. Saad, do you want to take us through some of that literature? 
Yeah, an interesting paper published in an American Chemical Society journal looked at different materials that people were using just around their house uh, as mask, and they found that four layers of silk was similar to that of a 600 thread per inch cotton weave, and they basically blocked more than 65% of particles smaller than 300 nanometers and more than 90% at greater than 300 nanometers, which is actually really similar to an N95. So I know there was a lot of controversy about what masks to wear and whether masks were doing anything and whether you know homemade masks were doing anything. And this does show that if you're using the right material, it actually was making a difference. Well, what about fit? Pantel, take us through if, like, actually, you know, the N95s kind of are fitted to your face, if that makes a difference. Fit is really important so that you don't have air leaks, because if you have an air leak, then technically your aerosol particles might be getting distributed. In the hospital and in the, you know, medical setting, we were using fitted N95 masks so that we would try to decrease the air leaks as much as possible. Um, But even with the proper material, if you have an air leak and you are wearing a non-fitted mask, that can still be useful. And that's what we're kind of all wearing in the healthcare setting uh, now for the most part. There was a study that talked about, it was an observational study about the support use of masks to provide source control and reduce transmission in the community. They used it at schools. The study took place in Arkansas. The school district Arkansas implemented policies requiring masking for students in K through 12. And they had a 23% lower COVID-19 incidence compared to those with no masks. So I think like the study has been showing, masks work, whether they're completely fitted or not, it does decrease um, the incidence. I thought that study was interesting. We know that the kids probably aren't wearing their masks all the time and and that kids have lots of viruses in general. And even in that environment, the cases dropped by about a quarter compared to those without masking. So I think that was pretty good evidence. Yeah. And speaking of more evidence, a systematic review and meta-analysis of eight studies from several countries through 2021 showed a relative risk reduction of 47% with full masking. Um, Another cross-sectional study published in Lancet in 2021 showed that communities with the highest self-reported rates of masking had the lowest transmission rates in the country. Even infectivity of the Delta variant dropped from 5 to 1 in those communities. In epidemiologic studies, government-issued mask mandates and high rates of self-reported mask wearing um, did result in clearly decreased COVID-19 hospitalization rates. And uh, on the other end of things, lifting of universal mask mandates has conversely and um, kind of logically been associated with increased case rates and increased hospitalizations. So what about that controversial study? There was like that meta-analysis published in the UK in 2022, and I thought that it said that masks actually don't provide protection from COVID-19. Can you guys comment on that? Yeah, that was an interesting study. And I remember the headlines at the time actually saying that masking doesn't work against COVID. And that was the takeaway from the study. So I took a deep dive into the study itself. And the studies that were included in the meta-analysis were mostly looking at influenza cases um, from the last several decades in non-severe years. Only six of the 78 studies were performed in the healthcare setting. And only two were included from the very early COVID pandemic before we had general masking mandates, and it was very much self-reported data. So the quality of evidence was fairly poor. And the authors themselves also noted that 
The studies that they included had variable adherence to masking. Anywhere from 40 to 80% of the time, the groups that were supposed to be wearing the mask were wearing the mask. Most of the studies didn't even report that number, whether their patients were wearing the masks all the time or not. Again, it's really limited what we can conclude from all these studies because they weren't really related to COVID-19. They weren't really related to healthcare and they weren't really high quality evidence um, in terms of wearing the mask properly all the time. So I think the take home from that is we need better quality studies um, to see the true effects of masking and really the true effects of hand washing probably. And I think given all the epidemiologic and the public health observational studies that we've seen that Patil mentioned earlier, I think there's a pretty strong case that masking does work. Yeah, definitely. So let's go through our current masking requirements. So I know California has put out a whole thing on masking requirements. So regardless of the COVID-19 community levels, the California Department of Public Health recommends to wear a mask around others if you have respiratory symptoms like cough, runny nose, or sore throat. Um, Consider wearing a mask in indoor areas of public transportation and transportation hubs such as airports, stations. This is increasingly important as the risk for transmission increases in the community. And then when choosing to wear a mask, ensure that you find one that has the best fit and filtration to your face. So the N95s, KN95s, and KF94s are the best ones. And if you have had significant exposure to someone who tested positive for COVID, uh, they still recommend to wear a mask for 10 days. Now, who should not wear masks? Persons younger than two years old. So the very young um, really shouldn't be wearing masks because of the risk for suffocation. And then if you have a medical condition, a mental health condition or disability that prevents wearing a mask. So this is people who, you know, wearing a mask could obstruct their breathing or who are unconscious, incapacitated or unable to remove a mask without assistance. And then um, people for whom wearing a mask would create a risk to the person related to their work as determined by local, state, or federal regulators or workplace safety guidelines. For everyone else, masking has moved to a tiered system based on the prevalence of COVID in your community. And um, as of the day we're recording this, most, if not all, counties in California are in the low tier, um, which is that there's lower community spread and impact on the healthcare system of COVID-19. And the recommendation is to wear a mask based on personal preference, uh, informed by your own personal level of risks, and recommending to wear masks if you're in a uh, a vulnerable population, um, in an indoor public place, or if you live with a vulnerable person, then you can take additional precautions. And um, if you're in a high-risk setting, um, such as a hospital, for example, wearing a mask should be considered. I think just remind everybody, when we talk about vulnerable populations, you know, we're talking about cancer patients, immunocompromised, people getting chemo, HIV, um, probably pregnancy also, anything that messes with your immune system. So this effectively ended the mask mandate for healthcare workers. And right now, um, the California Department of Public Health has really left individual hospitals, systems, and doctor's offices to create their own policies. So for those of you listening in our own local area, you know, what is American Ambulance's policy on this? Really, we're kind of following the guidelines from California Department of Public Health and really are also all the hospitals here in the area. So our own local policy here at the agency 
is we're going to continue to follow the policy of our local hospital. So if the hospital says, hey, when you drop off a patient, we want you an N95, we're going to put it on. If they want you in a surgical mask, you're going to wear that. Now here on your own, if you come to a pre-hospital call and you're caring for a patient outside the hospital that does not have a contagious respiratory symptom, so they do not have known COVID, influenza, fever, chills, body aches, we're still recommending the use of a surgical mask. It's not mandated, but we are recommending it. Uh, Most of the local hospitals are still requiring surgical masks. So we really want our employees to wear at least surgical masks while caring for these patients. N95s are no longer required, um, but we still want to practice giving our patients and their family members a surgical mask prior to entering the hospital. Um, Now, if you are caring for a patient with a contagious respiratory symptom, so they're COVID positive, known respiratory infection, they're going to be getting an aerosolizing procedure like CPAP, albuterol, they're getting bagged. We really want our... um, EMTs and paramedics who are N95s while, while directly caring for that patient. So that's our American Ambulance Policy. Let's go through some summary take-home points. It's kind of a rapid COVID review after three years of living with COVID. Um, what do you guys want people to remember from today's podcast? Sajit. First is use your own judgments regarding masking based on your health, your patient's health, and the prevalence of If you guys like the American community. Ambulance EMS podcast and you feel like this has been useful for you, please give us a five-star review on the iTunes COVID, store so that we can move up in the ratings so that uh, other uh, pre-hospital professionals can listen to us as well. Um, and we're also taking any solicitations for ideas or or topics that you want covered, and you can email us anytime at um, podcast at AmericanAmbulance.com. Once again, Thanks, that's everyone. podcast at AmericanAmbulance.com. Thank Thanks. Thank you for joining us on the American Ambulance EMS podcast, produced by American Ambulance in Fresno, California. The views of the guests and the hosts of this show are their own and don't necessarily reflect the views of American Ambulance or UCSF Fresno. And I'm John Mark Bergen, American Ambulance's media producer, saying thanks for joining us. Have a great shift and stay safe out there.